Well, this past week we took a look at this, uh, this book of Revelation and the idea that uh, we are living in this idea of Christmas in exile, when we can't go home for the holidays. And as we started looking at the book of Revelation, there were a few thoughts that I think are important just for us to go back over again uh, as we take a look at this passage. The first reminder is that Revelation is more about who is revealed than what is revealed. In other words, if we try to figure out all the what's going on in the book of Revelation, but we miss the who, then we've missed the whole point of the book. Uh, secondly, uh, is that Revelation is best understood not by looking forward, but by looking back. There are all kinds of crazy interpretations of the book of Revelation that are looking forward to our current world events or things that are going to happen. Um, and, and ultimately, what we understand is that of the 404 verses in the book of Revelation, there are 517 looks back, allusions to the Old Testament. We have to understand the Old Testament if we're going to understand the book of Revelation. And today I introduce you a new thought that is this, is that Revelation is a book of contrasts. If we're going to understand the book of Revelation, we must understand that we are literally being whiplashed from one contrast to another, from one image to one that is an extreme contrast to that image, like what we will see uh, today. I don't want to get ahead of myself. Uh, if you want to follow some of these notes as well, or if you just you know, get busy taking down notes and miss a few, you can always go to ecc.life, uh, and uh, we have the, the sermon there, the Bible notes. You can follow along right there as I preach right there, and even see what's going to come next if you want to. Uh, but as we started last week with apocalyptic trivia, apocalyptic jeopardy, I want to ask you a question today. And just shout it out if you think you know the answer to this one. That is this. The most frequent command that we are instructed to obey in the book of Revelation is A, repent, B, endure, C, be faithful, or D, behold or look. Which one do you think it is? Not everybody all at once. All right. Come on, online school here. All right, all right. So we got a few different guesses there. The answer, the most frequent command that we are instructed to obey in the book of Revelation is D, behold or look. Now that's a trick question because it occurs 26 times in the original language, this declaration, behold or look. But if you have the NIV version, that only is translated six times because we don't even know what to do with this command fully. It's just one of those words that seems like a redundancy in our language, but it is extremely important as we will see today. And the whole idea here is that the images we see in the book of Revelation, when we are instructed to behold or to look, are meant to propel us to faithfulness. They're meant to help us to understand by what we see is supposed to be reflected in our lives by faithful obedience. And so when we see this word, it's an important one. When Kristen and I were first married, we were driving down the road one day, and she said, Dear! And so what did I do? I slammed on the brakes. And she about smacked her head on the dashboard. She said, What was that for? I said, Well, you said dear. And she said, No, I meant there's a deer over there in the field to look at. I said, No, you've got to understand. In the Fulton family, here's how it's going to be done. I said, if, if you say, if you want to point my attention to a deer that's over there in the field, you say, hey, there's a deer over there in the field. But if you want me to stop, you say, deer, because back home, when somebody screams deer, we're hitting the brakes so we don't hit the buck, right? And so that's similar to what we have going on here in the book of Revelation today. 
When we hear the word look or behold, it's not John saying, look. Oh, isn't that a nice scene over there? That's cute. It's look. What you're about to see could very well be life-changing. And so we're going to look at Revelation 4 and 5 today, which Revelation 4 and 5 kind of have this parallel image. They're contrasting to a certain degree, but they're also one and the same. Uh, and, but we've got to remember where John was at. Chapters 2 and 3, John is talking to the churches in Revelation. And what we see from the churches is that the churches are in chaos. The churches, many of them, are simply disobeying. They all have these areas where they're rough, they're having trouble to follow Jesus, except for the ones who are being persecuted, who are being persecuted. And so John is in this, this, this place of this world that is utter chaos, and I think we can identify with that, can't we? Our world is in utter chaos. And the last image that we see in the book of Revelation in chapter 3, the last image in chapter 3 is John, you know, seeing Jesus, Jesus says, behold, or look, I stand at the door and knock. And he's literally knocking at the church door in Laodicea, asking if they would let him in. And here in this contrasting image in verse 1, it says, after this, I looked and look, behold, a door standing open in heaven. When the church doors are closed to God, somehow in his faithfulness, he keeps his door open to heaven. We should learn wisely. And the first voice, which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, look, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. Now what we're going to see here in chapter 4, I'm going to have to summarize for you so we can get through this passage today. But what we have is all these different pictures of the throne. Very rarely is there much description of God himself in these Old Testament epiphanies, even though this is in the New Testament. What we see is a description of everything that's going on around the throne. We see around the throne that there was a rainbow, a promise of God's faithful covenant keeping from Genesis 6 through 8 and 9. And then we see that there are 24 thrones with elders wearing white garments uh, with golden crowns on their heads. We could talk about all day long who these 24 elders are, but I think it's safe to say that they are simply faithful witnesses who have endured. They are our example of people who have endured and are now sitting around the throne worshiping. There's flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. There's seven torches of fire. There's all this stuff that's going on around the throne. There's these weird creatures. And all of these are nothing new. In fact, if we look back in our Bible to three different epiphanies or visions of God, we will see there in Isaiah 6, in Ezekiel 1 and 2, and in Daniel 7, that virtually all of these characteristics that were there are now here in the book of Revelation, including this statement from these angels with six wings who declare, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. 
The reality is that the same God who was on the heavenly throne then is on the throne now and will be there forevermore. John has gone from chaos to order. From the chaos of this world to the order of heaven, and it is good. In verse 11, it goes on to say, Worthy are you, Lord, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. And in chapter 4, we see that God is being worshipped for his goodness in creation. That he has created a good world, and he is worthy to be worshipped for his creative acts. The only problem with that is that his created world is now in chaos, isn't it? And it leads us to a question. If God is the ruler of heaven and earth, and everything in heaven is in order, then why is everything in chaos here? If it's in order there, then why is it in chaos here. I don't think I need to do a lot of explaining in 2020 to you that the world is in chaos, do I? We are a broken, fallen mess. That leads John to go from order to despair. In chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written, and on the back, both sides of the scroll have writing on them, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Let me explain to you what's going on here for a moment. Ancient scrolls would have only been written on on one side because they were made out of papyrus. Papyrus is a plant leaves. They would have laid it crossways like this. You would have written on the side that was horizontal because otherwise you'd have a bunch of bumps and a bunch of blurs. The only time you would ever write on the back of a scroll or a piece of papyrus, say that real quick five times, piece of papyrus, is if you were A, poor, hint, that's not what's going on here, or B, if what was to be written on this scroll was so important and so vital that it needed to be contained all in one document. The seven seals, seven is a number of perfection in the book of Revelation. We see it repeatedly over and over and over again. It's a number of completion. What is contained in this scroll is all of the judgments and justice of God that this earth is crying out for. What we see in the Bible and in the book of Revelation is it's not that heaven's up here and earth is here, but the heaven and earth have these overlapping parts. But the whole picture of the book of Revelation is that God wants heaven and earth to eventually come together as one. And if heaven is going to come together as one, there's a lot of things about earth that have to be done away with. Because if you have to choose between heaven and earth, choose heaven every time. There are so many things that have to be done with. Death, sickness, sin, disease, mourning, 
injustice. All of these things, and the list goes on and on and on. All these things are rolled up in this scroll, sitting in the right hand of God, who sits on the throne, just waiting for one who is worthy to unveil, to open the scroll. This is the most important scroll in the history of mankind. And if it is not opened, then all of that goodness, all of that hope, all of that promise stays rolled up and is nothing more than writing. And so in this loud voice, the angel is not just saying, who's worthy to open this scroll and break its seals? This is a cry. This is a desperate plea. Who is worthy? And you can imagine John here in this image starts looking around right away. Who is worthy to break the seals and to open the scroll? And it says here in verse 3, And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. No one is worthy. John is crying. Eric Clapton is confused because there are clearly tears in heaven. What are we to do if no one is worthy? Because what we have here is utter despair. The British atheist Bertrand Russell wrote a famous book called Why I Am Not a Christian. And in an interview conducted by the BBC towards the end of his life, he was asked what he had to hang on to when death was so close. His answer, I have nothing to hang on to but grim, unyielding despair. Grim, unyielding despair. Tell that to the friend at work who just lost their baby. Tell that to the old woman who just lost his wife of 50 years to COVID. My dear brother, my dear sister, hang on to grim, unyielding despair. And yet that is exactly what we have if no one is worthy. Friends, it is not just John in heaven who is looking around weeping because he sees no one is worthy. Our culture is looking around for hope and not seeing anyone. And they are weeping because we are drowning in grim, unyielding despair. Our cities are burning because there is no hope on the horizon. Our families are decaying because there's no one that can hold them together if this is what we have, if there is no one who is worthy. Have you come to this point in your life where you look out and you see that there is no one in this world who is worthy. That there is no donkey, there is no elephant that can possibly save us. 
Because that is where John came to. But then he goes from despair to astonishment. As he is there bawling his head off, rightfully so, because all of the judgments of God, all of the righteousness that God wants to display on this earth are still rolled up in a scroll. One of the elders who was worshiping apparently comes and taps him on the shoulder. And the elder said to me, Weep no more. Behold, look. Funny, the only two times that's been used in this passage so far is when it's been pointing people to God. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. The lion of the tribe of Judah promised back in Genesis chapter 50. He has triumphed and now he is worthy to open the scroll. And I imagine that John turned quickly, but through his tear-filled eyes that was blurring his vision, even he could see that what he was looking at was not a lion. Look at what it says. And between the throne and the four living creatures, among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into the world. I've been on several safaris in my lifetime in Africa. They're wonderful things. Never once have I confused a lion with a lamb. A few times I saw him eating creatures that looked like it could have been an old lamb. Never once did I confuse the two. This is the contrast that I was talking to you about. What we see here is that this lion, the king of the jungle, the one who is ruling, what we see is the lion won his greatest victory when he became a vulnerable lamb. That of all the power trips that we have seen throughout the course of humanity, about all the nations that we have seen rise into power and fall by the sword, this is the lamb who went sacrificially, was slaughtered, and yet that contrast was slaughtered, and yet was standing in the throne room of God. Church, the lion of the tribe of Judah did not try to overcome with power, but overcame with sacrifice. And because he laid down his life for us and for this world, he is victorious and he is standing in the throne room of God. And he is worthy to open, break the seal and to open the scroll and to usher out this hope into this world that is so filled with despair. The vulnerable lamb has won the greatest victory. What does that mean for us? Let's look at what happens next because it will unpack it. Verse 8. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and with golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. 
because of the Lamb's victory, our prayers and cries for justice will finally be answered. Have you ever prayed a prayer and wondered whether or not it was answered or not? Have you ever cried out for healing for a dear brother or sister in Christ who is undergoing a significant sickness? And the answer seemed to be no. It ended in death. What we see here is that the answer was not no. The answer was not yet. And at the resurrection, it will end in life. And they sang a new song in verse 9, because when you see something like this, you start writing new songs. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. That was a promise that was made to Israel that they would be a kingdom of priests to God. And yet what they're saying in the book of Revelation, this wasn't just true for Israel, it's true for every tribe and every tongue and every nation and every people. Because of the Lamb's victory, He is building a kingdom of priests from all nations. All nations. This is not just about reaching our neighbor, it's about reaching around the world. It's about reaching our neighbor, even if they are not worshipers of Jesus, even if their skin color is different. The hope is the same for them as it is for us, because he is building a kingdom of priests of God from every tribe and every nation and every tribe. Who are you excluding from that hope? Is there a family member who's just sinned a little too much? Is there a neighbor who's just a little too far gone? Is there a people group whose actions turn you off? The answer is they're not too far removed from God's hope. And they shouldn't be from ours either. Because of the Lamb's victory, he's building a kingdom of priests for all nations. Verse 11, Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads and upon myriads and thousands of thousands, it's the biggest language they had. That's the biggest numbers they had. Millions upon millions is what they might as well have been saying. Here's what they say. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing and synonym, synonym after synonym after synonym because words are not enough to describe the glory of the lamb. And it says, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Because of the Lamb's victory, he will reign forever and ever. There will be one inauguration. And it will last forever and ever. What does this mean for us? Because of the Lamb's victory, we can trust Him to shepherd us through the darkest valleys. Because the Lamb Himself has laid down His life, He is the shepherd we can trust, even when we are in the valley of the shadow 
of death. Andrew Brake tells the story of a little boy who was desperately ill. His parents called the pastor to come and to visit, and the pastor spent some time with the little boy in his room that night before going home. The next morning, the pastor awoke, went to see the family again, and found out that the little boy had passed that night. He wept with them. He prayed with them. He grieved with them. He comforted them. And then the parents asked the pastor a question. He said, Pastor, there was something strange that happened with our son last night. Something that we can't explain. Something he had never done before. And even though the boy was unconscious in his final days, the pastor said, well, what was it that he did? And the mom and dad said, well, he, right before he died, and for about an hour before he died, he just took a hold of his ring finger and he just held on to it as tight as he possibly could and would not let go. What does this mean? The pastor, through tears, explained to the little boy's mom and dad that when he was in the room, even though the boy was not responsive, he had taught the little boy a four or five-finger exercise. The Lord is my shepherd. He's the one who went before him in death. And he's the one who can shepherd him. And if the little boy wanted to follow Jesus, what he should do, even though he couldn't speak, is he should just say, the Lord is my and he should just take a hold of that finger. And he should just hold on for all eternity. Because that finger's the finger of commitment. That's the finger that the little boy's mom and dad had put their rings on when they made a promise to each other. And if that little boy wanted to make a promise to God, then he should make it in the same way. The Lord is my shepherd. Church, we have a lamb who was slaughtered and yet is standing in the throne room of God. And in the midst of all the despair and all the chaos that's going on down here in this world, the order of heaven is starting to come to earth. We can trust in the lamb who was slain to be our good shepherd forever and ever. For he has overcome even death. He is the one who is worthy of all the praise and the glory and the honor forever and ever. And he is the one that you and I can trust today.